you may be seated this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, just throw your hand up and one of our ushers will be glad to bring a Bible to you. Just lift your hand up and one of our ushers will bring you one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours. Please, please take that with you. Read it and fall in love with the God that you see in its pages. Acts chapter 25 is where we're going to be today. Has there ever been a time where you've known something to be true, but then all of a sudden one day it hits you that it's true? You know it's true, but then one day you find out, no, it's, it's true, true. Y'all know what I'm talking about. My wife and I have been married for some time, and I remember we had been married for months at this time. Um, and we were, I mean, we were married, married, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Living life, doing what married folks do, loving it. And I'll never forget coming home one day, opening the door, and finding a person in my living room. I was like, oh, wait, you live here. It's my wife. And it just hit me afresh. I'm like, oh, we're doing this thing for real, for real. Like, you're going to be here forever. <laughs> and I was like, I knew it, but all of a sudden, something happened in my heart that just made me realize this thing is real. Maybe for you, it was a, a, a class when you started school and you got that first assignment, or you started a job and you had that first angry coworker, all of a sudden it makes you realize what you believed you already knew. Remember, even as an adult, the first time you get a bill with your name on it. College students, enjoy. Enjoy. Because one thing to see a bill, like, oh, throw that away. When they got your name on it, you got to do something with that. Amen? Then all of it hits you like, man, I'm an adult. Like, ain't nobody else to call right now. Ain't nobody else going to do this laundry but me. And so we, we get these moments where we get to really know something that we thought we already knew. And today in this passage, we're going to look at two chapters of the Bible, Acts chapter 25 and 26. I'm going to make the case that Paul is going to get something that he thought he already got. He's going to know something that he thought he would already know. And we're going to see that when Paul really gets it, how that can be an example for all of us. So I'm going to take this, these two chapters into three major parts. I'm going to break them up, and the, the three parts are going to be first an unusual appeal, then an unlikely audience, and then an uncomfortable address. Look with me at, at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 5. It says, Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. A little background for those who may be just tuning in. Paul has spent most of the book of Acts in jail, it seems. Um, and so this is yet another instance where he was arrested for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is hope in him alone. Now, that may not be a controversial statement in our settings, but when you are a Jew who just killed Jesus, Jesus being the Messiah that you're supposed to be looking for, seems like an indictment on you, does it not? And so the Jews pushed back upon that statement. They said, no, 
Actually, Paul is a heretic. He's, he's spreading lies. And so they not only arrested him, but they were trying to kill him. Festus, the man mentioned in verse 1, was a new ruler. The previous ruler was by the name of Felix. And Felix arrested Paul. And at to this point, Paul had been in prison for two years. It wasn't really clear what the accusations were, but Felix just kind of wanted to appease the Jews and said, man, you hate this guy, so I'll keep him in jail. So we pick up the story after Paul has been in prison for two years without really having a, a, an accusation put against him. They didn't know what to do with Paul, so they just kept him in prison. And so Festus, this new ruler, as soon as he is inaugurated, the Jews two years later say, hey, let's talk about Paul again. Now, I don't know if y'all hate anybody like that much, but two years later, I'm probably going to forget about whatever you did to me. Two years later, these people are still mad, and not only mad, they still want him dead. And so the first order of business after the inauguration of Festus is, hey, let's talk about one of the prisoners that you have in a cell. His name is Paul. We're trying to kill him. Can you help us? Festus, for whatever reason, says, nope. I'm not going to send him to Jerusalem because that's where they were going to ambush him along the way. But the request seemed to make sense. It was a Jewish accusation. The temple was in Jerusalem. It seemed to make sense that, hey, send Paul to Jerusalem, but we don't know why Festus disagreed, but he did. He says, I'm not going to send him to prison. But he's a new ruler with these new people, so he's trying to ingratiate himself to them, trying to earn a little bit of favor. And so this is what he says in verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul and asked him, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul is an intelligent man, so he replies, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, let's catch what just happened. Festus wants to kind of do the Jews a favor and says, hey, Paul, would you want to go to Jerusalem? Now, why is that important? Paul, Festus isn't just being a nice guy. Paul, being a Roman citizen, had certain rights and privileges. One of those rights and privileges is your, the venue of your trial could not be moved without your permission. And so Festus has to get Paul's permission to take him to Jerusalem. So he's like, hey, man, the Jews say, hey, send him to Jerusalem. Festus says, I don't really know why, but I tell you what, I'll ask him. Kind of shifting the blame, says, not me. I wanted him to go. Paul doesn't want to go. So Paul, knowing that his life would be in danger, says no. But then Paul does something interesting. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now, that's not something in our normal vernacular that would make sense. But basically, appealing to Caesar was the right of every Roman citizen that if they felt like they weren't being treated fairly in a court of law, they could appeal to Rome and to Caesar himself. In the military, they call that requesting mass. Well, if you're in front of your commanding officer and you don't feel like you're being heard, if you feel like you're being punished unfairly, you can do something that's called requesting mass. At least they called it in the, in the Marine Corps where I serve. Now, you could request mass, and you could go all the way up to the commanding general where he would have to hear your case. Now, here's the question. Why did Paul appear, appear to Caesar? Some commentators would say that, well, Paul thought that he might be sent to Jerusalem where he knew he would be killed along the way. So in order to preempt Felix from sending him to Jerusalem, he appealed to Caesar. But that's, that can't be the whole truth, at least. Because remember, Felix couldn't move Paul without Paul's permission. And we saw in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, it'll be on the screen. It says, I, Paul is saying, I consider my life of no value to myself. 
My purpose is to finish my course, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So Paul is saying, I don't care what happens to me. As long as I'm faithful to the end, they can have my life. So why would Paul appeal to Caesar? I want you to think on that. We're going to come back. After this appeal, we have an unlikely audience. So Festus gets inaugurated, and all of a sudden, kind of out the blue, the big dog shows up. King Agrippa II, King Herod Agrippa II, shows up, presumably to to celebrate with Festus as the new ruler in that area. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should. There's been several Herod Agrippas in the Bible. Herod was kind of a title family name. Um, You might remember Herod Agrippa I, this man's grandfather. He was the one who killed all the Jewish boys looking to kill Jesus. You might remember his father who imprisoned James. You might remember his uncle who killed Peter. These Herods are infamous all throughout Scripture as being anti-Christian, yet they were in charge of the temple. They were the religious experts in Rome about the Jewish religion. Matter of fact, Herod had so much power, it was him that appointed the high priest over the temple as a way to politically control these people. So Paul kind of out the blue gets an expert in religious law to come hear his case, an unlikely audience. Now, why is this good news? Because he's appealed to Caesar, but Festus can't send him yet because he doesn't know the charges that are being brought against him. Look at verse 17 of chapter 25. We're laying some groundwork here. Y'all stay with me. So when they had symboled here, I did not delay. This is Festus talking to Agrippa. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man, Paul, to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and to be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So here in verse 25, we see clearly that Festus says he's innocent, but he can't send him to Caesar just yet because he doesn't even know the charges that's being brought against Paul. He's like, man, people just want him dead. They're just angry, but I don't know what's going on. And so we get an unlikely audience because here Paul is standing in front of King Herod Agrippa, a man who holds Paul's life in his hands, who in that moment could free him or execute him. Such is the power that King Herod had. And look at chapter 26, verse 1. So Festus invites King Agrippa, and King Agrippa says, man, I want to, this sounds interesting. I want to hear this. Festus says, sure. So we have chapter 25. You're absolutely right. Unusual appeal <laughs> in front of an unlikely audience. And what happens next is an uncomfortable address because look at verse 1 of chapter 26. It says, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. Stop right there for just a moment. You're, you've been jailed for two years. You've been falsely accused. You've had your life threatened. And you are standing in front of a man who holds your very life in his hands. What would you say? What would you say? Maybe this is your way, this is your chance out. Maybe you make an impassioned plea, but what would you say? And in the following verses, it's, it's, it's almost routine, but at this point, Paul does what he always does. 
He tells his testimony about how he was a Pharisee, how he used to persecute Christians, but God stopped him on this road to Damascus. A light shone down, and Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He begins to tell his testimony yet again for the third time in the book of Acts. We see Paul sharing the good news of Jesus when his life is on the line. And this time, he did something a little different he hadn't never done before. He had a little something to his testimony. Look at verse 19 to 20 of chapter 26. He's kind of round. He's kind of climaxing to the end of his testimony. And then he says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. He's standing in front of a king and he's like, I don't want to I might leave this place dead, but you're not you're going to leave this place hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. You're going to leave this place knowing that you have got to turn from your sins. Whatever you may do to me, know that I am not the one on trial, but you are before a holy God. And so we see Paul in this moment flipping the tables. Although he is the one in chains, he's actually the one sitting on the judgment seat saying, God has judged you because of your sins and repent. A little uncomfortable in the room. Verse 24, it got so uncomfortable that as he was saying these things in verse 24, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice. He shouted out, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study has made you insane or is driving you mad. That's one response to the gospel. (laughs) Hey, man, you repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ. You are crazy. Okay. So he just dismisses Paul's whole argument and says, oh, this man, this man is insane. Paul would not be deterred. I can imagine just in this, we can use your sanctified imagination for just a second. Look at verse 25. It says, Paul replied, no, I'm, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these things. And, like, you can imagine him like, no, I'm not crazy. I'm actually, I'm feeling pretty good today. I'm locked in today. So you can almost see him trying to counter this insanity defense and saying, no, I'm okay. By the way, an insanity plea would have actually led him out of those chains. The Romans, for those the criminally insane or the insane, were not punished. If he would have just said, yeah, he would have been sent home that day. But he was, he was after something bigger than his freedom, y'all. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. Now look at him going back to King Agrippa. For the king knows about these things, and I can speak boldly to him, for I'm convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, talking about King Herod Agrippa, since, he, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, Agrippa said to Paul. Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily, Christian? Agrippa said, look at the boldness of Paul, y'all. I may have one shot to speak in front of a king. What would I say? I may have one chance to get invited to the White House. I may have one chance to sit down with the CEO. I may have one chance to sit in front of someone with power. How would I use that one chance? To build my kingdom or to build the Lord's? Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? He's asking Paul, are you trying to convert me? What's Paul's answer, y'all? Yes! That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Verse 29, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am 
except for these chains. Yes, I want you to repent and believe, Agrippa. Yes, I want you to repent and believe, Festus. Yes, I want you to repent and believe, all you in this room who's hearing my voice. And this is, as I studied this text, I began to, to see some connections in Paul's demeanor because it's a little different than he was arrested before. It's a, little, it's a little bolder. It's a little more reckless than even for Paul. I think right here is where Paul began to really get it. He began to see the connection to all of his suffering, the false accusations, two years imprisonment, the constant fear of death. And that's just what happened in the last chapter. That doesn't count the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and the starvation and the jailing before that. I begin, Paul began to realize that this suffering wasn't the detour away from God's plan, but it was God's plan. Remember the unusual appeal at the beginning? Paul appealing to Caesar? This is such a big question because even a Herod Agrippa wonders why he would make an appeal to Caesar. Look at verse 30 through 32. The king, the governor, Bernice, which is Herod's sister, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I want us to put some pieces together really quickly. Paul spoke multiple languages, right? He was trained under one of the foremost religious teachers. He was a Pharisee, had huge chunks of the Old Testament committed to memory since he was a child. He was a Roman citizen who knew all the ins and outs of the legal system because he used them to his advantage time and time again. Paul was brilliant, a man who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. I believe that Paul knew that he was innocent. I believe that Paul knew that if he would just make his case, that he would have been acquitted. So why would he appeal to Caesar when he knew all he had to do was be patient and he would get to go home? You remember a few months ago, Acts chapter 9, that road to Damascus that Paul talked about, his conversion moment? Remember this man named Ananias was told to go and pray for Paul? And when Ananias pushed back and said, but this man Saul, he's a persecutor of Christians. He, he's terrifying. Why should I go and pray for him? And the Lord said, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Does that seem a little at odds to you? Paul, you're going to take my name to kings. Oh, and by the way, you're going to suffer for my name. You see, previously, I thought that those, two were, those were two separate things. But I think Paul is realizing that's just one thing. Paul, like many of us, probably believed that the test comes first and then the testimony. The valleys come before the mountains. The pain comes before the platform. But sometimes the test is the testimony, church. Sometimes the valleys of your life are not preparation for what God is about to do. Sometimes those valleys are what God is doing. This is why I think Paul appealed to Caesar. He realized somewhere along the way it wasn't prison and then preaching to kings. It was in prison that he would preach to kings. For Paul, the pain and the platform are the same thing. Paul, you're going to 
preach to kings and you must suffer. Those are not two separate things. Those are not different checkboxes. Really, those are one and the same. The theologian and pastor Charles Octavius Booth says, there is no one that cannot do something for the building up of the church, the house of God. So there is no one that is not able to help in some way in making the gospel known throughout all the world. The Lord has a work for the young as well as the old, for the weak as well as the strong. And so some of you are thinking, man, I can never preach like Paul. I'll never be in front of kings or CEOs or important people. My platform isn't big enough. I don't have enough success. Nobody would listen to what I have to say. Dear Christian, it's not always your success that will be your greatest testimony. Oftentimes, it's your response in suffering that will be the loudest sermon your life will ever preach. Your response in suffering, and I think Paul got it. I think, he, I think he knew if I would keep my mouth shut, I'd get to go home. But if I get to go home, maybe I don't make it in front of Caesar. But if I stay in prison, if I can suffer for a little while, God can use me in that suffering. As I think about some of the hardest moments of my life, and I'm praying that God would rescue me from the pain, that he would move me out of this moment of suffering. And as I, re- I look back on those moments in my own life, I realize that God didn't move me. He didn't rescue me because if he would have, I would have been relieved from the pain, but I've been missing his presence because God wanted to work right there in the midst of those chains, in the midst of that imprisonment, in the midst of that suffering. God wanted to do something right there. In that pain is where God was working. In that loss, dear brother and sister, is where God is working. In those unanswered prayers, that is where God is working. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. In the midst of your deepest pain and darkest night of the soul, you found him, didn't you? The presence of Almighty God. During that depression, you found him, didn't you? After that breakup, you found him, didn't you? After that job loss, those missed paychecks, you found him. After that miscarriage, you found him. Sitting on the front row of that church, looking at that casket for the last time, you found him, didn't you? Sometimes the very thing that we're asking to be rescued from is where God wants to do his most profound work in our lives. And we keep asking for relief when we should be asking God, show me where you are in this. Some of us have known the truth of Psalms 139, 7 and 8. says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, to the depths of the grave, you are there. And some of us have found him at the grave, have we not? Some of us have found him working there. This is what I believe Paul learned. This is what I hope we all learn that God is enough. That God is enough. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And bring it home. Even if my business shall fail, even if my marriage may struggle, even if I feel the pain of loss, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Church, suffering isn't a sign of God's anger. 
And success is not a sign of God's goodness. Suffering is not a sign of God's anger. Sometimes that's the way God wants to give him more of us, more of himself to us. So yes, pray. Make your desires and your petitions known to God. As you suffer and as you go through that loss, pray for comfort and relief. But in the meantime, ask where God is already working that you can meet him there. That's why Paul stayed in chains. That's why Paul didn't want to go home because he knew that God was working in prison, not in freedom. The greatest good sometimes doesn't look like it, does it? The things that have transformed us the most didn't look like it was going to be good for us, did it? And I know this not by just looking at Paul because I know the greatest good ever accomplished didn't seem all that good. You see, Paul was innocent of these charges, but Paul was not innocent. He was a sinner like you and I, but there was a day where a completely innocent man faced charges. No one came to his rescue. As a matter of fact, all of his friends deserted him in that moment. He was whipped and beaten. A crown of thorns was put on his head. The naked he was forced to drag across, the very same cross that he'd be nailed to, to slowly die in shame and pain. And that innocent man wasn't just a man, he was God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. This miscarriage of justice is even more remarkable because he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't do what Paul did in offer of defense. For if he would have just uttered a whisper of a word, ten thousands of angels would have come to his rescue. So he had to keep his mouth shut. Miscarriage of justice had to be done. He had to die. He had to suffer. He had to stay right where he was. And it wasn't for his benefit. It was for yours and mine. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You see, there was a day when death thought he won. There was a day when the grave thought that he won. There was a day when the sin thought that it won because Jesus, the Messiah, was a dead in a grave. But as Pastor Jake preached last week, he didn't stay dead now, did he? He got back up after three days with all power in his hands. And that is why we can say, like 1 Corinthians says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? God was at work on the cross. God didn't work despite the cross. God worked through the cross. And God is not going to work around your suffering. God is going to work through your suffering. And if you ever doubt it, don't look at Paul. Look at the resurrected Jesus. Because in him we could find hope. The reality, brothers and sisters, is that we may not be rescued from our suffering, but we, through Christ, have been ransomed from our sins and restored in relationship to God. And my prayer is that that will be enough. Pray with me, church. Father.